Greetings, Spectacular fans. This is Greg Bashansky, host of Spectacular Radio, and I would like to apologize for the tardiness of the podcast. I have been busy, Zach has been busy, and even Greg Wiseman has been busy producing the fourth season of Young Justice. As such, we have not been able to gather to record as much as we would like to. Also, we did our best with this particular recording, but Zach and I discovered partway through that the recording we had going didn't take. So we had to literally recreate the podcast from scratch right afterwards, and that sapped some of our energy. So if we sounded bored during this, it was because... Well, you know, it's hard to just recreate something like that. You lose your spontaneity, you lose a lot of the energy, but we do enjoy doing this podcast, we do enjoy this series, I hope no one ever thinks otherwise, and I hope you keep sticking with us, because we are getting the podcast back on track, and final curtain, or bust. Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. I thought Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus! From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Venom! Green Goblin doesn't take orders from insects. The Green Goblin swaps them into oblivion! Oh, you better not get your goop in my hair. Spider-Man! Threat or menace! Someone is so getting the look. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead, try. Welcome back to another episode of Spectacular Radio. This time we're covering accomplices. I'm Zach Joyner, your friendly neighborhood co-host of Spectacular Radio and webmaster of spidey-do.com. And as always with the fan panels, I am joined by the man who hosts this show, Greg Bashansky. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome for welcoming me to my own show. I do appreciate that. Once again, Gerard still isn't here. He sells computer issues. Actually, that's a lie. What Gerard is really doing is he's invading the Temple of Doom now. If he's on the correct schedule, he's currently fighting Mullah Ram over a rope bridge hanging across a chasm filled with crocodiles. So let's wish <laughs> Gerard luck and hope that Mullah Ram doesn't rip his heart out. True story. True story. <laughs> I think you'll appreciate that one. <laughs> yes. Yes. So uh, we don't have any emails or voicemails, uh, but if you want to leave us an email or a voicemail, go to 818-925-6631. That's 818-9-CLONE-1. It, you can leave it for all of our shows here on the Spider Dude Radio Network, and we will play it here on the show and react to it. And you um, will say anything you want to us. Call us douchebags. We will, we will respond. True story. <laughs> and you can also write to us at spectacularradio at gmail.com. Leave us an email and we will talk about it on the show. Mm-hmm. You're running out. You're quickly running out of shows to, to, to send us emails about. So just saying, um, we're hurtling ever so closer. So uh, Accomplices is the episode we're covering, as I mentioned at the top. Greg, uh, give us the synopsis of what happened in this episode. First episode of the Gang War arc, one of my favorites. Okay, the Black Cat breaks into this Chrysler building and effortlessly makes her way past 
various security measures. Just as she's about to claim her target, she's caught by a group consisting of Oscorp's Donald Menken, Hammerhead, Doc Ock, and the Vulture, Patch, and Roderick Kingsley. Hammerhead lets Black Cat go without any fuss, and Menken announces that bidding will begin soon. The final bidder to arrive is Sable Man Freddy, daughter of notorious crime boss Silvio Silvermane Man Freddy, and an acquaintance of Hammerhead's. Bidding begins, with Hammerhead and Sable going at it. Patch pathetically tries to bid one cent above Sable while Kingsley shoots high. Too high, in fact, as his bid exceeds any amount deposited in the bidder's accounts. The auction is put on hold so the bidders can put more money into their bidding accounts. At Midtown High, Captain Stacy talks about the importance of partners in his seminar, and once again subtly hints that he knows Peter Parker's secret. Harry sees that Peter has a new Osbury phone and is initially excited, but gets bummed out when he learns that Norman gave it to Peter. After Harry leaves, Liz shows up and reminds Peter that they're going out to dinner. Peter tells her that he promised Frederick Foswell that he'd drop by the Beagle after school, but, he, but they'll try to be on time. And this is a Spider-Man story, so you know what's going to happen. Yep. Liz is confident that Peter will be late, but will consider it a victory if Peter actually shows up. Ooh, she's savvy. I guess she's read Spider-Man comics before. True story. <laughs> At the Bugle, Jameson refuses to run Foswell's story on the auction, and Silvermane's intention to use it to reestablish his power base after getting out of jail. Foswell won a Pulitzer on a Silvermane expose 12 years ago, which presumably helped get Silvermane put behind bars, but Jameson claims that all Foswell's done since then is get lazy. Foswell dejectedly tells Peter that there might not be a story, but Peter suggests that having pictures might change Jonah's mind. The auction resumes without Patch, as his mystery employer, Jameson, withdrew all the money from the bidding account. Besides Jameson. Patch leaves the building and is spotted by Peter, only for Peter to be shocked when Patch reveals himself to be Frederick Foswell. Foswell managed to plant a bug on Mencken, and he and Peter listen in. Foswell thinks that Silvermane's release from prison will result in a major gang war between the traditional mob of Silvermane, the big man's current empire, and Doc Ock's new wave of super criminals. The auction isn't chicken feed either. It expects to mass-produce the rhino's armor, giving the owner a means to create an army of super mercenaries. The bidding continues, and Kingsley wins with a bid of $500 million. Peter wonders what Kingsley, a perfume manufacturer, has to do with all of this. Megan tells Kingsley that he can pick up the specs at the Tribeca warehouse on Hudson Street. Peter leaves to get a good spot for pictures while Foswell calls the police. The exchange is made, and the police promptly arrive. Spidey muses he might make it to his state after all, just as a helicopter comes in and begins gunning at Kingsley and the police. Spidey tries to get into the helicopter but is kicked off by Sable, a.k.a. Silver Sable. She leaps from the helicopter and attempts to claim the specs from Kingsley, only for Hammerhead to show up and try to do the same. Hammerhead also proves to be an adept fighter and reveals his namesake to Spidey, his steel-plated skull. As Spidey keeps interfering, Hammerhead and Sable, who used to date, agree to team up and get rid of him. Spidey, however, manages to get the better of both of them, only to discover that the case containing the specs is empty. Kingsley managed to fool everyone and get away with the ship. It doesn't take long, however, for the rhino to find him at a parking garage after having been alerted to the situation by Doc Ock. Rhino doesn't like the idea of there being more of him and tries to take the ship from Kingsley. Of course, everybody else shows up with Hammerhead and Sable duking it out and Spidey going for Rhino. Eventually, Spidey realizes that Rhino doesn't want the specs leaking either and proposes a partner up. Rhino agrees and begins tearing the garage apart in order to get Hammerhead and Sable down to their level. The ship 
changes his hands a few more times until Rhino finally crushes it under his foot. He then promptly turns on Spidey. Sable and Hammerhead get out of Dodge as the place begins to crumble. The garage collapses on Spidey and Rhino, who cleverly orchestrated the collapse in the first place. Please tell me I didn't use a trick I once used, get fooled by a trick I once used on Shocker or whatever the line was. Yeah. The police arrive and use knockout gas to subdue the rhino and Spidey climbs out of the rubble. Captain Stacy drops another subtle hint telling Spidey that he tells his students it never hurts to have somebody watch, watch their back. Mencken informs Kingsley over the phone that his bid cannot be refunded as securing the merchandise was his responsibility. Mencken then tells Norman Osborne that everything went according to plan. Osborne reveals that ship was fake in the first place. Therefore, he now has half a billion dollars in an unmarked account and the specs to use as he sees fit. Peter shows up at Liz's place very, very late. Too late to go out, but Liz is glad that Peter at least showed up. Peter remarks that he doesn't deserve her, and Liz agrees, but says that they'll work on it. Peter leaves, thinking about how cool Gwen is before correcting himself to Liz. At the Beagle, Jameson still refuses to run Fazo's story on the auction, preferring instead to smear Spider-Man, again for teaming up with the Rhino. Peter arrives and shows off his, shows off his pictures, convincing Jameson to run the story. And... I thought this was a really fun episode. A few... I think that there's a change here that might be controversial, but we'll get to that later. In the meantime, I'm going to do my Zack impression when we talk about what could have been with Miles Warren. Because this is the first time we've ever gotten Roderick Kingsley in an adaption, and... Finally! And no season three, so... No Hobgoblin. I know, I know, I know, and the Roderick Kingsley Hobgoblin is one of my favorite villains of all time, and anytime, and it feels like anytime Hobgoblin shows up in anything, he's Mackendale. Jason Philip Mackendale is all about this with crime. <laughs> Let's be honest. I'm sorry, I can't let you live. You know, uh... You know what's funny about that? He says, if you don't marry me, I can't let you live. I'm thinking, you know, a wife can still testify against her husband if she wants to. What the hell are you talking about, Jason? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, 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 seriousness, I did think Hobgoblin is one of the better villains in a 90s cartoon. I mean, that Mark Hamill voice helped. <laughs> yeah. But there were times when they kind of wrote him like uh, Kingsley. I mean, they didn't reveal his identity for a very long time. He was manipulating criminals against each other. Yeah. He was far more he was far more like the classic hobgoblin than the Mackendale hobgoblin. In fact, when we finally see Jason Mackendale on that show, he's kind of the snooty rich guy, which is way more Roderick Kingsley anyway, which is hilarious because at the time the episode was written, Hobgoblin had not yet been unmasked. True story. And uh, the fact that they mentioned Kingsley as running a perfume company, kind of tells me that they were going to use Belladonna in season three. Is Belladonna obscure? Yes, but so are those two FBI agents. Yeah. I wonder how many of our own listeners know who Belladonna is. Well, if you know who Belladonna is, you should write us an email at spectacularradio at gmail.com. Yeah, tell us you know who Belladonna is and why you know who Belladonna is. And then by that, without googling, yeah. And then by that new origin of the hobgoblin trade that came out a few years ago, which has that story in it. Yep. But no, no, no. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm going to be lamenting a lot about not getting hobgoblin throughout this podcast. So I'm so we may as well switch gears. I mean, 
I enjoy the new version of Silver Sable, but I'll freely admit that Silver Sable has never been a favorite character of mine. And I have nothing against Silver Sable. She's always just been kind of there. I mean, and I mean, I enjoyed her in the uh, PlayStation 4 game. She was really cool there. That was a more traditional Silver Sable, though. The, uh, the mercenary from Simcaria, is that the name of her country? Simcaria, yeah. I mean, um, what do you think of her being Silvermane's daughter here? I know Greg has said that they connected the characters because of the silver theme. I don't have an issue with it. I don't have an issue with it either. I can see why some people might. I mean, every character is somebody's favorite, but like Herman Schultz, I don't really care. I mean, yeah. Was Silvermane a part of one of the most iconic Spider-Man Romita Jr.'s or Romita Sr. stories of all time? Yes. Tabloid Time story is iconic. But what has Silvermane done outside of that? Nothing. Besides becoming a cybernetic robot. Mm Mm-hmm. So, no, I have no issue with with, uh, Silvermane and Silver Sable being related. Neither do I. Actually, they used the uh, 12-year timeline here, and I looked at Silver Sable... And I said, okay, how old is she? She and Hammerhead used to date back when she, he worked for Silvermane. And then I asked Greg Wiseman, um, asked Greg one day, was she underage when they were dating? What's going on here? And Greg, to his credit, responded, oh, I think, they, I think she was underage when Hammerhead was dating her. Which is part, one of the reasons why he has a new skull. Oh... Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a little bit of world building that I enjoy. <laughs> yeah, well, that could that, that would explain why he needs a new a new crown. Uh huh. So yeah. Yeah, yeah book. Yeah. So uh, Hammerhead did something inappropriate with an underage girl, his boss's daughter, and um, had a hole put in his skull. Sounds like something Vince McMahon would do. Whoa! <laughs> Sorry, Gerard will get that joke, and probably nobody else. Yeah, steel plated. Yeah. But, but, no, uh, but go on. Uh, this is a very action packed episode again. Um, you know, for me, it, it's one of those episodes that um, it's a lot of world building, but there's a lot of action. Really good action too. Yeah. What I like about Doc Ock's presence, not that Doc Ock doesn't bid, he could probably, he created the Rhino Specs in the first place, he could probably recreate it, he probably just wanted to know where that ship was going. Yeah, he wanted to see who was, who was interested. And it was Roderick Kingsley, who will never see what he had planned. And meanwhile, Osborne screws over Roderick Kingsley, which, uh, yeah, a lot of groundwork being laid here. A lot of groundwork. Yep. We should also talk about Frederick Foswell because this is a character that gets very little play anywhere else because he died in the 60s. And I look at an episode like this and I almost think that killing him off back then was a shame because I love having that guy, that reporter who goes who undercover into the underworld with all these connections. Yeah, I, I think it's... Yeah. Um, I think it was a shame, but that was very vindicative of, the, of that era as well. Yeah. I mean, have there been reporter characters since then who have that shtick? I mean, I know Ben Yurick comes to mind, but I don't recall Ben Yurick having his own underworld persona and identity, like Patch. You know, uh, the only thing that comes to mind is Facade. 
and I'm blanking out on the facade, and I feel like I shouldn't be because I am on CSC. Uh, facade was the character that Terry Gavinoff created. They're like, they had this big mystery. Who was Facade? And it was like implied that it might have been Jameson or um, he ended up killing Lance Bannon, who was also like one of the characters that might have been a hobgoblin suspect. Yeah, it wasn't just a hobgoblin suspect. He was a facade suspect too. Yeah, take a drink every time we say hobgoblin. Oh, you'll get very drunk. That's the idea. Hobgoblin. Hobgoblin, hobgoblin, hobgoblin. <laughs> damn it. God damn it. So- sorry. Sorry. Um, let's see. And also, I really enjoy Hammerhead on the show. This is one of the few places where I can honestly say that. He's always been kind of boring to me whenever he appears in anything else. And I credit a lot of that to um, John DiMaggio. I give a lot of that credit to John DiMaggio. He brought so much charisma and character to to Hammerhead, who's otherwise a one-note character everywhere else. I mean, he only, I mean, he, he was only used a couple of times in the 90s show. Yeah. I mean, it, actually, as I recall, in the 90s show, he was he was an equal to Silvermane and Kingpin, then the next time he appeared, he was King, Silvermane's henchman? Yes. Okay. Um, okay, uh, John Semper's not going to declare that he invented retcons. Ugh. <laughs> Just like John Semper's like, I created Spider-Verse. I should be getting an honorary Oscar. I created Black Cat. We'll talk- oh, we haven't talked about Spider- We'll talk about Spider-Verse on our next podcast before we talk about the episode. Yep. But, yeah, John Semper is uh, an interesting fellow, but his but no, his contributions to Spider-Man fandom and Spider-Man lore cannot be denied. He created a show that was an entire generation's gateway to not just Spider-Man, but to Marvel, so... John Semper, we love you. You're a kook, but we love you. Yep. It's a it's a tough love sometimes. True story. There's a lot. Go- I mean, there's just so much going on in this episode. Yeah, Greg Wiseman gave himself a ton of lines as Donald Menken, so <laughs> having fun there, Greg. I'm doing your best Owen Burnett impression. <laughs> uh, Owen Burnett was Xanatos' bespectacled assistant in Gargoyles. Very uh, Mencken-like with the glasses and the kind of deadpan. Yep. Norman, I, and I, some people might not like this, but I enjoyed that the whole thing was just a setup by Norman Osborn to um, put a huge chunk of money into an unmarked account, keep the specs, and let's be honest, I think he wants these gangsters at each other's throats. But why? We'll find out later. Or should we... I mean, granted, no. if you watch season one, you can figure it out. <laughs> True story. Uh, what other impressions do you have about this episode? It's use of characters like uh, Silver Sable, Hammerhead, uh, Hobgoblin! No, think... <laughs> um, no, I think Hobgoblin was good. I mean, everything I I felt like was was a lot of fun. And... Like I say, it's it's a it's a it, to me it was an excellent it was an excellent introduction to this new arc and this new status quo. Uh huh. Did you notice the presence of a second Kingsley? Not yet. There there were two Kingsleys in this episode. Both Kingsley brothers appear here, although they are subtle about it. The one at the auction is Roderick. 
the one at the parking garage at the end is also Roderick. Because, you know, he's not afraid of Rhino. When Rhino gets into his face, he just calmly calls the police. The one who panics at the sight of Silver Sable and says, We paid for this fair and square. Who is we, Daniel? Oh, Daniel. Nice. You, you never caught that? I never caught that. Go look at it again. You'll see it. <laughs> So yeah, that was Daniel Kingsley, very suddenly woven in. And another reason why I think that is that during the credits, every character is listed credited by their first and last name, not Kingsley. He's only credited as Kingsley, which is very inconsistent with everything else. And considering all the details and the attention paid on this show, that had to be deliberate. True story. So yeah, Daniel Kingsley was there in the back, was there... uh, pissing his pants and running off and um from silver sable and her giant staple gun <laughs> which by the way is another trope in, from greg wiseman tv shows uh black beetle used a giant staple gun in one episode of uh young justice season two and um there was an episode of gargoyles where xanatos picked up a giant staple gun at one point there you go yeah if greg, greg if you're ever if you're listening to us your autobiography should be titled Shakespeare and Staple Guns. There you go. And um, I also... Like I say... Go on. I, I like the Silver Stable introduction. I like the character dynamic between her and Hammerhead. Uh, I like how much of a magnificent bastard Norman is. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that... It does a, and, and Donald Mankin, you know, is kind of this shrewd, ruthless businessman, and I, I enjoy it. Yeah, and I, I especially enjoyed Hammerhead's chauffeur. Yeah, yeah, Hammerhead's chauffeur, yes. I enjoyed her, too. I wish she was a ca- character from the comics. I mean, I asked Greg about that once. He said that at the time they had discussed making her someone from the comics, but then they didn't get a season three, so... There you go. Because that's an extra, she kind of became a fan, a, a favorite behind the scenes also, so they wanted to make her somebody. And hey, she drives better than anyone else does. I mean, we can make a bad driving joke about me again, but yeah, I mean, I mean, she she drives better than the Greg chauffeur, so that is also a very true story. And I also back to Silver Sable, that was Nikki Cox. There you go. Does anyone remember Nikki Cox? She used to be. There was a period in the late '90s where she was the hot, where she was considered to be the hottest woman on earth. I mean, I remember. No, that. I don't. Oh, yeah, you're a little bit younger than I am. She started out. On, I remember the WB network was new. She had, she was on this sitcom that was kind of a ripoff of Married to Children, where she played an intelligent but bitchier version of Kelly Bundy. And then she had her own sitcom that only lasted a couple seasons, where she plays an erotic dancer in Las Vegas. I mean, she was for a while. She was on the cover of Maxim all the time. FHM. I mean, if you were a teenager... Was it Unhappily Ever After? Yes. There you go. Yeah, where um, we're, we're, that guy, that psycho guy who talks to a his stuffed rabbit in his basement. Yeah, that was the show. That was the oh, show. Oh, uh, Jay, Jay Moore, yeah. yeah. She's married to Jay Moore. They got divorced last year. Yeah, well, he didn't play that guy. Jay Moore was on that TV show, Action, in the year 2001 or, or, or so, where he played this sleazy Hollywood producer. <laughs> Not as sleazy as a Weinstein, but up there. <laughs> there you go. All right. But yeah, so um, when I so yeah, when I first saw, listened to the credits and I noticed that was Nikki Cox, I was 
surprised, pleasantly surprised. I mean, for one, like I said, I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember when she was considered one of the hottest thing in the '90s, and hell, there were there were times when Wizard Magazine would run polls saying she should play Mary Jane because she was a hot redhead. Yeah, she was in Las. She was on Las Vegas. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, she's a redhead. I'm not entirely sure she's my first or second or even third choice for Mary Jane, though. But, mm, but she's yeah, so, but she's so good. I mean, and uh, she put in a pretty good vocal performance. And um, I think the last person who played Silver Sable prior to this on the '90s show was Mira Furlan, who I'm also a fan of. She was Ambassador Delenn on Babylon Five. True story. But um, I give this episode a... I know there's a lot of people out there who complain about the ending because of the fact that the whole thing was a trick by Norman and they were all chasing around a nothing MacGuffin, but... I, enjoy... I, I, give, I give it a B- minus for myself. I, I, I'll give it a solid B. I, I enjoy Rhino in the episode. Hell, Rhino outsmarts Peter. How often does that happen? Never. Never. And it didn't feel out of character either. It, you missed me. I'm not aiming at you. Oh, please tell me I didn't fall for a trick on Wednesday. was on Shocker. But no, I'll give this episode a solid B. I mean, really solid episode. Nothing particularly wrong with it. But it does at the same time, it doesn't really stand out among the crowd at the same time. There you go. But to be fair, this even this show's weaker episodes high quality. So I'm marking a good series. So I'm giving this episode a B. He's giving it a B minus and... We shall see you next time. I'll regret this, but you want to partner up to destroy it? <laughs> okay.